we'll be talking about the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary is excessively important, and I'd like to read to you this quote here. It's from The Great Controversy, page 488. Ellen White tells us that the subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Do we have some people of God here? Do you understand clearly the sanctuary message and the investigative judgment? Because she said it ought to be clearly understood. And so this morning what I would like to do is I would like to um, take a trip through the sanctuary service, the sanctuary message, as well as how it applies to us and what does it teach us about righteousness by faith and how we ought to be living in these days. So we're going to be looking at a lot of material, a lot of stuff. We're going to go really fast, and I only have like three slides. But you'll need... Where's my Bible? Cherie, thank you. <laughs> my wife was keeping my precious book. Uh, so you will need this. And if you have one of this... I'd like to ask you to turn it off so you're not going to be distracted. I'd like to also ask of you to pray while I, I present this message, uh, not only that I may have the proper word, but that I might be in tune with God at all time, and that you may also understand and be protected, so that if I say anything of a human nature, uh, it will not affect you. Amen? And the last thing is I want you to think, because we need to think. God gave us a, a mind, a renewed mind, praise the Lord, to Think and understand things of God, all right? And we need the Spirit of God in order to do that. So before we begin, let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. And first, we just want to thank you. God, it is so amazing to be able to come to you in prayer, to be able to come to your word and study. And Lord, later, we'll be able to go to your people, to your sheep that do not know that they are your sheep. And Lord, I pray that you will be with us at this time, Lord, as we study your word, as we study the sanctuary message, such, such an amazing doctrine that you gave a special understanding and knowledge to this church, to this movement. And I pray, Lord, that as we look and study, that we will gain a greater understanding of you and your plan of salvation and what you have in store for us. And I pray, Lord, that we will leave with a better understanding, better equipped, but also convicted of what you expect of us. I thank you, Lord, for giving us this chance. I pray that you will let your spirit abide on us, on all of us, that I may speak, but that your people may hear and understand. And I pray, Lord, that all will go according to your will, that your spirit will be here and that your angels will protect us and that anything that is of the devil will be evicted at this time. I thank you, Lord, and I pray this in our loving Savior, the land that takes away the sins of the world, Jesus. Amen. The sanctuary message, I just made this little graphic really quickly, is very central to a lot of doctrine in Adventism. In fact, if you do not understand the sanctuary, there are many aspects in Christianity and in Adventism that you will not understand. Things like salvation, the law, the nature of sin, the judgment, the atonement, and righteousness. If you do not have a correct understanding of the sanctuary, these things will be nebulous to you or they will simply be um, incomplete. Your knowledge and your understanding, understanding will not be complete. And so it is excess excessively important for us to have a good understanding of the doctrine of the sanctuary. 
I'd like to ask you to first turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 77. 77, and I'll read verse 13. It says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? And if you want to understand the ways of God, how do you understand it according to the verse? Through the sanctuary. All right, so if you want to know the ways of God, it is through the sanctuary. So here you have a picture, a depiction of an artist, um, which kind of like tells you a little bit what the sanctuary may have looked like. Obviously, it is not 100% accurate because nobody was there to take a picture. But I'd like for us to go a little bit through the history. What I want to do this morning is, because I don't know where everybody is in their understanding of the sanctuary. So we'll begin at the beginning, and then we'll progress uh, until as far as we can go in the two hours, prophetic hours that we have. Uh, let's begin in the book of Exodus. And we're going to spend a lot of time now in the book of Exodus because this is where the idea of the sanctuary begins. Exodus chapter 25. In verse 8, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? that I may dwell among them. And so God wants to dwell with us. If you remember the promise in Revelation 22 is that God will be our God and he will dwell with us. The word dwelling mean, in the Hebrew is the same word for the word tabernacle. Okay, the word tabernacle means dwelling. It's a staying place. And so when we talk about the tabernacle, we obviously think of the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. And that's where the word comes from and the idea, the idea comes from. But now my question is, why is it that God wants a sanctuary? He wants to dwell among us, yes, but couldn't he have dwelled in any other ways with us? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. Now what is Exodus chapter 20 famous for? The law, the Ten Commandments, right? So in the beginning of the book of Exodus, we're going to take a trip to the book of Exodus. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Israelites are captive in Egypt. And God sends Moses as his general to take uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. And as he does that, there's a bunch of plagues. And, and the people are seeing the power of God. They're seeing all these plagues happening. And they're looking at Moses and they're like, I don't know who this Moses guy is, but it seems that God must have sent him because, look, all these things are happening just as Moses predicted. And in the end, they finally leave Egypt, and Moses is leading them, and they're coming to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, there's a great display of God's glory. There's a cloud coming down, covering the whole mount. There's lightning flashing everywhere, and suddenly they're hearing this booming voice. I like to think it's a booming voice. It's described in Revelation as loud thunder and, and voice of many waters. And then God speaks the Ten Commandments. And then we go to, chapter, to verse 18 of chapter 20 and we, we see their reaction to this display. It reads, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar. God has just come down to them, and they removed themselves and stood afar. And they said unto Moses, and catch this, 
Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. So what was the reaction of the people when they saw God's display? Fear. They were scared. Now, is that, does that look like a familiar reaction to you? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Don't lose your hand. We're going to come back to that passage. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Adam and Eve, after they had eaten the fruit that they were not supposed to eat, it reads, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And so the Israelites, just like Adam and Eve, feared and hid themselves. And so it seems to me that God couldn't just appear just like that to them. It was just too much. They were not ready. They couldn't handle it. And so in chapter 24, let's move further now. Um, when you go through chapter 21 and 20, 23, you get um, uh, extra details expounding the Ten Commandments that God had given. And in chapter 24, we read in verse 1, and he said unto Moses, Come unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy um, of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. So now God is telling them, Stay afar. Don't come too close. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgment, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the word which the Lord had said, will we do? That's a pretty tall order once you read everything that God had commanded for them to do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and arose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars under, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men and the children of Israel, which offered burnt offering and sacrificed peace offering of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood... And put it in basin, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord had said, we will do. And be what? Obedient. Obedient. The Israelite understood that God demanded, requested, required obedience. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord had made with you concerning all these words. So they entered into a covenant of obedience with the Lord. Immediately in the next chapter began the plan for the sanctuary. Now I find that very interesting because the people pledged that they would be obedient. And then God began the work of the sanctuary. Do you know what the primary purpose of the sanctuary is? It's to deal with the broken law. And so they begin saying, we will obey. And God said, that's fine, you'll obey. I'll dwell with you in my sanctuary, but that sanctuary will be there to deal 
with the broken law, with sin. And so in, verse, in chapter 25 to 27, you have the plans of the sanctuary. Chapter 28, the clothes of the priest. In chapter 29, you have the consecration or the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the priestly ministry. And then in, verse, in chapter 29, verses 43 and 46, if you will turn there, it says, And there, this is God speaking, I will meet the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his son to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the people, among the children of Israel, and will be their God, and so on and so forth. Now, what is the idea that you get in these few verses? What is God doing? He's sanctifying. Okay, he's doing the work of sanctification. God is the one doing that. And how is it that the sanctuary is being sanctified? By the glory of God. By His presence. Glory is His character. By the presence and the character of God is the sanctuary sanctified. Now the word sanctification um, has been a source of debate, I would say, in Adventism. Um, a lot of the modern scholars just like to say, well, it's a setting apart for a good use. Totally true. It's that. The sanctuary is set apart for a good use. The articles in the sanctuary are set apart for special holy use. But when it comes to the people, not only are they set apart for holy use, they're also expected to obey. By doing the work that they're supposed to be set apart to do, which is obedience, they become sanctified by God. Okay, just keep this idea in your mind. In chapter 30, more plans are given. Chapter 31, God selects the very workers to build a sanctuary. It was not haphazard. God had people that were very specific. This guy is going to be the uh, woodworker. This guy is going to be the metal worker. Everyone had a specific role. God was in charge of the whole plan. And you get to chapter 31, and, and all these things are happening, and God is sanctifying all the articles, all the people that are going to work. Everything is being sanctified. Now, if you're an Israelite and you realize you need to be sanctified, what do you think the first thing you need to do is? Uh, you need to associate with the sanctuary. Because let's think about it. The altar is sanctified. The, the whole place is sanctified. The priests are sanctified. If I want to be sanctified, well, I need to associate myself with the sanctuary. And God wanted to make sure that that would not stay in the mind of the people. And so let's turn to Exodus 31. And let's understand what God is saying. Out of nowhere, God suddenly started talking about his Sabbath. He's been talking about the sanctuary service. And then he goes to the Sabbath, one of the commandments. And he said in verse 2, in verse 2 he says, The Lord spake unto Moses, but in verse 13, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generation, that you may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Who sanctifies? God sanctifies. The service in the sanctuary, necessary, but that's not what sanctifies the people. God is. And so God, 
in order for people to understand so they may not be confused as to the role of the sanctuary, specify and says, my Sabbath is a sign between you and me. It's a sign that I am the one who's going to sanctify you. Not your work, not anything that you do, but I am the one who will sanctify you. It goes on in verse 14, You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. And at the end in verse 18, it says, And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. So there is no mistaken as to which Sabbath God is speaking of here. He's talking about the Sabbath of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath of the Ten Commandments had became a pattern for the uh, feast Sabbath. Okay, you know that they have all these different feasts, the Passover, the Day of Atonement, uh, the trumpet, and all these things. And the way they were to keep these special days, their pattern was the Sabbath. No work, affliction of soul, you come to God, spend time in prayer, you put everything aside. It's a time one-on-one with God. So in order for people to understood that, God re-emphasized the importance of the Sabbath. The Sabbath became a pattern for these things as well. All right, let's move ahead. <clears throat> there were three uh, tabernacle temple in the history of the Israelites. There were three types of sanctuaries, well, not three types of sanctuaries, but three different sanctuaries. The first one is one that we're probably the most um, knowledgeable with. It's the one that is usually called the Tabernacle of Moses. Now, it didn't belong to Moses. It was a tabernacle of God, but Moses gets the credit, if you will, for building it. All right? In Exodus 29, verse 43, it says, And there will meet the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. Okay? And so, how does God sanctify the tabernacle? By his glory. In chapter 40, we read, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord Fill the tabernacle. That's at the time that the tabernacle became sanctified. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness became sanctified when the glory of God entered in. Now, keep that in mind. This tabernacle was designed... It, the, the word tabernacle is also a tent. That's, that's what it is. It's the tent of the congregation, the tent of meeting. The thing with a tent is that you take out the pegs and you move. And so every time that the glory of God, the Shekinah glory would move, people would take out the tent, pull everything together. It was all very specific. Certain tr- people were to take care of the candlestick. Certain people were to take care of the Ark of the Covenant. Certain people were to take care of the outer court. Everyone had a specific role. They would take everything out, and then they would move. And where the Shekinah glory would stop, they would reset the temple. They were in a time of transition. They were in the wilderness. They were walking around. God had to uh, uh, get Egypt out of their system before they could settle down. 
Now, this temple stopped being in use when Solomon's temple was built. Now, Solomon's temple, um, originally his father David wanted to build it. But because he was a man of war and shed much blood, God says, no, you can't, but your son will. And so David said, okay, I can't build a temple, but let me make, a, you know, prepare as much material as I can so that I can have a part in, in this building. And so the building was built by Solomon. And in 2 Chronicles 7.1.3, we read, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, he did this awesome prayer. He finished praying. It says, The fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, was the temple of Solomon sanctified? Yes, it was sanctified by the Lord's glory. And so the tabernacle of Moses was sanctified. The temple of Solomon was sanctified. Now, the temple of Solomon was eventually uh, destroyed when Babylon came, when the invader came and brought uh, the Israelites into captivity. But during the time of Persia, the Israelites were allowed to go back to Israel, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild a new temple. Uh, That's during the time of Zerubbabel. It's often known as Zerubbabel's temple. Now, this is a lot of information, but I think it's important because people had a lot of trouble building that temple. When they were in the wilderness, I mean, nobody was bothering them. They had all the riches because the Egyptians had given them everything. In the time of Solomon, it was a time of peace. No invaders, no war, very easy to build. But when they were in captivity, if you read the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, the Chronicles, they were constantly being harassed by the people around them. Construction started, ended, stopped, everything. But it's very interesting. In the book of Ezra chapter 6, we read, And the elders of the Jews built it, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they built it and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So they were, despite the difficulty, they were encouraged by the prophet. Did you understand that? If you're discouraged, go to the prophet. We're Seventh-day Adventists. Go to the prophet when you're discouraged. So now, what is it that the prophet encouraged them with? What was the word that he preached that encouraged him or them? Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. It said, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. What was the former? Solomon's temple. The latter, the temple they were building. So what are people expecting? No, we're not talking about glory as beauty. Not to the eyes, anyway. What is the glory that made the other temple awesome? Yes, the presence of God. Right? Every time they would be done, the presence of God would just fall and it would be full of smoke and people couldn't approach it. Right? In Ezra chapter 6, verse 15, 17, we read, And this house was finished on the third, third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Well, that's it. No glory. God's presence didn't fall in the temple. 
no Shekinah glory abiding. How is it that the glory of this temple, which, by the way, is now destroyed, was destroyed in 70 AD, how is it that the glory of this temple was greater than the former? That's right, Jesus. Jesus himself went into the temple. You know, no wonder he was so angry at people selling stuff. It's like this is his temple, and he's bringing his glory in, and these people are taking this as a marketplace. The latter temple's glory was greater because Jesus himself, in humanity, well, divinity clothed with humanity, walked in that temple. You know, the Jews still don't understand that. They're still waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled when Jesus fulfilled it. I just think it's pretty amazing. The very presence of Jesus is what made this temple incredible. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the actual structure of the temple. Because as we understand what these things are all about and what they mean, it will give us a better understanding of what God is trying to teach us. Because these are not just articles. They have a meaning, they have a purpose, and they're teaching us. Uh, The first thing that I want you to understand is the door is on the eastern side. That is very significant because people would worship facing the sanctuary. What does that mean they have in their back? The sun. People at the time were big sun worshippers. And so God designed it that when they would worship God, their back would be turned to the sun. That would completely cut off whatever pagan influence they had in worshiping the sun. You're not supposed to fall on your knees with your face to the risen sun. You're supposed to be facing the sanctuary. And so that's the first thing. Around the, the, the sanctuary, as you've seen in the previous picture, you had the camp of the Israelite. Again, specifically arranged. Tribes in certain places, and you couldn't you know, mix and go around. God designed it like that. And it'll be significant when we talk about how this, what it means to us. Uh, the courtyard was basically white linen held by poles. And that was the first place that you would enter. You would enter from the courtyard. And in the courtyard, there are two pieces, two articles. Inside, there's the tent, the actual tent, the tabernacle. It has two apartments, the holy place and the most holy place. Now, the courtyard is interesting because as soon as you enter the courtyard, the first thing that is in front of you is the altar of sacrifice. Every time you committed some sort of sin or you, you had to bring a sacrifice, and most of the time, that's where the sacrifice go. Depending who you were, there were different ways of disposing of the animal, disposing of the blood, disposing of all these things. But it's, it's important to understand that this was where sin was dealt with. So the moment that there was a sin, it began at the altar of the burnt offering. The fire was a divine fire. It came from God, and it burned continually. Nobody could, you know, put any fire there. It was a fire that was kindled by God. Between the altar of burnt offering 
and the most holy place, which is the first apartment, stood the laver. Basically what it is, it's a big, giant bowl of water. Okay, I can put it like that. Uh, <clears throat> it's very interesting because uh, this laver served for the washing. The priests would wash their hands and their feet, and they could not enter into the holy place before they've done that or they would die. So once sin was dealt with, they needed to be purification. And then they could enter in the holy place. The first apartment uh, <clears throat> has a veil and nobody can see inside. So when the sinner would bring, bring his sin offering, would do his work and everything, then the priest would carry the blood inside and the sinner could not see what was happening inside. No idea. Is the priest doing his work? Is he really atoning? Is he really ministering the blood? I don't know. I can't see it. So what did the sinner needed to exercise? Faith. Faith that whatever was happening in there was actually happening in there. All right? The same way we need to exercise faith. First apartment, you have first the lampstand or the candlestick on the south side. It was lit only by the high priest. Nobody else could touch it. And it had oil in it, and it burned continually. That's the only thing that gave light in the sanctuary. Nothing else. And you couldn't flick a switch. It was constantly burning. It had seven branches and was made of beaten gold, complete gold. The table of shoe bread was on the opposite side, and it had... Uh, <clears throat> two rows of six bread, and the bread was made, do you know when? Because they, they changed the bread once a week. Now, did you ever leave your bread out for a week? What happens to it? Yeah, it kind of molds. This bread didn't mold. This bread was great from the first day they put it until the last day they put it. Now, do you know on which day they would make the bread? Uh, it's a trick question. On Sabbath. On Sabbath, the priest would bake the bread. He would take the old bread and place new, fresh bread. And they would eat that bread right there on the spot. The old bread, of course. And then the altar of incense, which was right before the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And that's where they would burn incense. And this incense would permeate the place, and would also enter into the most holy place. And there's something really awesome about this, and I'm going to tell you that later. Uh, <clears throat> and actually, when I was doing this, this study and preparing for this, this actually became my favorite thing. Before, it was like the showbread, but now it's the altar of incense. I just think it's awesome. So, <laughs> a little excited here. Okay, so <laughs> you have the veil that's separated. Now, keep in mind that throughout the year, the priests were only allowed to go into the holy place. The most holy place couldn't go. You get there, you die. It's that simple. It was veil with a curtain. You couldn't go in there. In there, you had the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant was basically a box. It's a box of wood covered with gold. And inside the box, what do you have? The Ten Commandments, the tables of the testimony, the tables of the Ten Commandments. Now, on top of the box, there's a cover. Okay, the cover is called the mercy seat. Okay, it's a representation of the throne of God in heaven. Okay, the mercy seat is also made of 
pure gold. And you have two cherub, two angels that are kind of like, like this with their wings. Okay, and they're looking downward at the law very reverently. In the middle of the mercy seat, so you have one on each side, and in the middle of the mercy seat is where the Shekinah glory would rest, the presence of God. So you have the law, the broken law, and on top, the mercy seat. Okay? Law and mercy together. Justice and mercy together. Right? In one article. Now, We'll, we'll spend more time talking a little bit in detail, but the idea is the sanctuary service was there to deal with sin. Depending who you were, as I said earlier, you offered different sacrifices. Each sacrifice demanded blood. The penalty of sin is death. And therefore, every time there was a sin, the sinner would need to bring a sacrifice because the broken law demanded death. But because nobody wants to die, amen, nobody wants to die, you would need to bring a substitute, somebody who would die in your place, somebody who was blameless or something. In this case, it could have been a a goat, a young bullock, uh, a lamb, you know, depending who you were. If you were a priest, if you were a king, if you were a peasant, all of them would be different. Now, I didn't uh, check online, but I wanted to check how much was the price of a sheep or a goat today. But he has any idea? Maybe a hundred at least, hundred dollar. Would that seem fair? So every time you sin, you got to take your card and hundred bucks. Hundred bucks. Now how many times do you sin every day? <laughs> no, seriously, how many times? It's expensive. But I want, don't want you to think so much as it's expensive in time, terms of finances. It's expensive in terms of sheep and blood. You know, these sheep, they would be, you know, these farmers, because most of them were, were farmers or, or sheep rearer and shepherds, and so they would have these sheep, and they would be born, they would take care of them and wash them and feed them and, you know, help them grow, and then suddenly they make a sin. That sheep had to be taken and brought, and with their own hand, they would have to slit their throat and let the blood drip. Anybody has a cat or a dog at home? Would you sacrifice that animal for your son? Sin is expensive. It costs Jesus. And so... <clears throat> This was very, very graphic for the Israelites. It made them think twice before sinning, before losing their temper, before getting angry at their neighbor, before taking something that they shouldn't take, Um, flirting with boys and girls. These things would make make them think twice. Now, we don't have that today, and, and praise the Lord, because I don't think I can afford as many sheep as I sin, uh, which is bad. But you know, God is there to give us victory. Amen? But think along these lines when you think about the sanctuary. Because this is there to teach us. So before they would 
kill the animal, they, would, they, they had a need to put their hand on the animal's head and they would confess their sin. Sin would be transferred to the animal. The animal's throat would be slit, the blood would be dripped. And then the priest would take the blood. Uh, he would wash his hands first and everything. Depending, again, who it is, sometimes they would go in the sanctuary, in the holy place. Sometimes they would not. Sometimes they would just go in the altar of offering. Sometimes they would need to dispose the blood outside. And, but when he would go in, he would go to the altar and he would place the blood there. And then he would dispose of the rest of the blood. And so the sin would be transferred to the animal and then would be transferred, quote-unquote, to the holy place, to the sanctuary. And there was a record of sin. Now, the man was forgiven. The sinner was forgiven his sin, but there was still a record inside the sanctuary. Okay, Just like today, there is a record in heaven. There are books in heaven that records well, pretty much everything. The Bible tells us that all our deeds will come in review. All our words will come in review. All right? There is a record of everything we have in there. So <clears throat> here's what I want to do now. There, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of feasts that would be taking place. Passover, tabernacles, trumpets, um, so on and so forth. But the one that is more important to us, to them, and to us as Adventists is the Day of Atonement. You've heard of the Day of Atonement? I want to go through the Day of Atonement a little bit. That's found in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, I've always found the book of Leviticus to be a very, very difficult book to read. A lot of laws, a lot of details, but I've found it increasingly intriguing and interesting the more I get to understand and to know. The Day of Atonement was a special day because it was the only time during the year that the high priest, not the normal priest, the high priest was allowed to go inside the most holy place. And what's inside the most holy place? The presence of God. So he would appear before God. That's a scary thought in itself. Uh, scary in the sense that you know, you're not appearing before anyone, right? It's the presence of God. Now, before the Day of Atonement would begin, in fact, 10 days before a trumpet would be sounded. It's the Feast of Trumpets. And in these 10 days, the people understood that on the Day of Atonement, something very critical and crucial is going to happen. They would spend these 10 days afflicting their souls, searching their hearts, making sure that every single sin had been transferred into the sanctuary, that they were cleansed and free. In the meantime, the priest would be going through a 10-day of cleansing and purification ritual because he couldn't just go in there for 10 days. Uh, <clears throat> even the day before, the priest, the high priest, um, apparently was not even allowed to sleep in case he would fall into sinful things. It was very, very crucial because if the high priest would go in there and he would still have sin, it's instant death. They took this day very seriously. And so for this whole time, <clears throat> these 10 days, they would prepare. When the Day of Atonement came, in the morning they, they have the daily 
sacrifice and the uh, evening sacrifice. In the morning, they would have the daily sacrifice as they always have every day. Oh, and I forgot to, to mention, during the daily sacrifice, that's when the oil was refueled and the altar of incense was also refueled with more incense. Okay, just so uh, you know when that's done because eventually things burn out. <clears throat> On that day, the high priest would now come and they would bring to him two goats and a bullock. The bullock was for him. He would make a sacrifice. He would kill the bullock. He would bring the blood inside, not before washing his hands in the laver. Would go inside, minister the blood on the altar of incense. Then he would leave. Then there was two goats. Okay, so this first sacrifice was for him and his house. Okay, that was for his sin and his house. You know what that means? Okay, the priest, the man, is responsible for his household. Now, <clears throat> let me digress just, just a little moment because I, I think that's important. In the Sabbath commandment, you know, it says, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy, six days you shall do all thy work, and blah, blah. And then it says, you shall do no work, neither who? Your son or your daughter or your maidservant, your maidservant, your oxen, your ass, and everything, and everyone that is inside your gate. Have you ever asked yourself why God has to enumerate all these people? Okay, because he, he's obviously talking to the head of the family. Because he's talking about sons and daughters. They say, they shouldn't be also doing any work. What would happen if, if you know, I, I don't have a son or a daughter. But if I had a son or a daughter, and on Sabbath, I'm keeping the Sabbath, you know, very, very well, very biblically and everything. But my son and my daughters that are living within my gates... Um, work on that day or, or do things that are not in Sabbath-keeping regulation? What would that do? Am I keeping the Sabbath? Mm. So you got to be, you know, young people, you got to be very careful because the Sabbath-keeping of your house does not just depend on the head of the house. It also depends on you. What you do on that day affects also your uh, father and your mother. And so <clears throat> think about it. God did not just specify these things just for fun because the man is expected, the, the priest is expected to be keeping his household in order. In order. That's why when it speaks of, of elders, you know, it talks about having their children in, in, in good order, in, in obedience and everything. Why? Because if they're not, well, these guys shouldn't be elders. Because how can they keep the church in order if they can't keep their own family in order? Right? So now on the Day of Atonement, the priest has done his thing. So he is cleansed as well as his house, as a representative of his house. And now he has these two goats. Lots are being cast. One is the, Lord of, uh, the goat of the Lord. And the other one is known as the scapegoat or Zazel. And so... The, Lord, the, the goat of the Lord is there for a specific purpose. Throat would be slit, it would be sacrificed, and then it would be brought inside. He would wash his feet and hand, in the labor, of course. Then he would go through the holy place, and then he would enter the most holy place. Before he does that, he would take some of the incense, put it in a, in a censer, and he would make sure that there's smoke everywhere in the most holy place. To, so the smoke would cover the glory of God. So that he wouldn't be destroyed. 
Once that was done, he would be able to go in with the blood. And so he enters the most holy place. Nobody sees it happening. It's just the high priest and God. And they're coming together. And I'm, I'm, I just try to imagine like the, the emotion that must be going through that. It's thrilling, but it must be frightening. It's kind of a, a very mixed thing, but yet out of duty, the priest doesn't just like chicken out and run. Why? Because he says he has all of Israel on his shoulder, right? Because what basically happened is when he, um, when he takes that blood, he goes to the mercy seat and he sprinkles. Now, the blood is to cleanse. He sprinkled it seven times on the eastern side of the mercy seat. Once that is done, the sanctuary is considered cleanse. The sin are symbolically now transferred to the high priest. Now, the high priest is carrying all of the sins that were there, and he comes out of the holy place. And, you know, you can imagine the people must have been thrilled because now the people are, the high priest is coming out and he's still alive. And now he goes to the scapegoat and he basically confesses all of the sins of Israel to the scapegoat. Okay? So that the sin, okay, so basically this is how it went. The sinner had a sin, it went to the animal. The animal's blood went into the sanctuary. The sanctuary became defiled with sin. Okay? It became defiled with sin. Now, the record is what defiled it because the record stays there. So some people are asking, well, if the, if the man is already forgiven, why is it that there needs to be another cleansing at the end? Right? Have you ever asked yourself that? I've already brought my sin offering like last week. Why is it that I still need a day of atonement? Why is it that there still need to be a cleansing? It's just like today. When we ask for forgiveness of sin, what is expected of us after? You know, what's the requirement for forgiveness? There's a, there's a requirement. You know that? What's the requirement? What's the condition? It's repentance. What is repentance? It's a turning away from the sin. So if I would go and I would, you know, I've, I've <clears throat> murdered someone. I go... I confess my sin. I'm a murderer. I'm sorry. Lord, please forgive me. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm repenting of my sin. Bring the sacrifice inside. The next day, I kill somebody else. Premeditated. I just wanted to kill that person. The record shows, yes, you've repented, but what kind of repentance was that? You're still out there serial killing people, right? And so there was, it's just like today. There's a record in heaven, and that's why we have this time of probation to make our repentance secure. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> once the high priest comes out, he's carrying the sin, he places it on the scapegoat. Now, the interesting thing with the scapegoat is the scapegoat was not killed. His throat was not slit. There was a strong man, a fit man, who would carry the goat, and he would go through a lot of purification as well. He would carry the goat through the whole... Um, how do you call that? Camp. There you go. <laughs> Through the camp. And everybody would see the scapegoat. And they understood that that's what happened when you sin. He would be carried outside the camp. 
He would be left in the wilderness at the mercy of whatever was out there. Animals, danger, uh, weather, whatever it would be, it would be left there to die. The greatest fear for the Israelite would be that that goat found his way back. Because isn't it what happens sometimes in our lives? We get rid of sin and sin finds its way back in our lives. They would, bring the, they would make sure that that goat was as far as could be and as, as lost as possible. And then when the strong men would come back, as well as the high priest, they would go through another rite of purification. They were not allowed to go back into the camp. Right? And so it was very graphic for people to understand. And what this did is that it, it cleansed everyone. So sin was like, we're, we're good. We've passed through this year. If you had the misfortune or the hard-headedness or the hard-heartedness to not confess your sin, and it was found, you would be cut off from the camp. You're, you're done. You're cut off. Just like the scapegoat. You're outside the camp. You just lost your salvation. People understood that it was a very important time. Now, there is no record in the Bible of this ever happening, but I'm pretty sure, or I, I imagine, it would have happened at some point. But it was very graphic. This scapegoat told the people a lot about their condition. Every year, they would see uh, this happen. In chapter 16, like I said, um, you have the whole Day of Atonement that is described. <clears throat> In verse 28, 29, we read, And you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from his people. Cut off from his people. And you can't come back. Now, here's the thing. This day of atonement is very, very special. Because it did happen then, but it has a great significance today. And what I want to do, but seeing that my prophetical time is up, is when we come back, I want to continue in that train of thought. Okay? The Day of Atonement, and as Seventh-day Adventists, we're all aware that we're living in what we call the anti-typical Day of Atonement. Well, what in the world does that mean anyways? Okay, we're going to look into that in, in some details, and I want to go through that quickly so that we can start talking about what does it really mean for us, what does it have to do with righteousness by faith, and how is it that the sanctuary can teach us today, even if it's a system of the Old Testament. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.